You're listening to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and he's a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And today we're talking about the ongoing debate over the Biden reconciliation budget bill, which is set to feature many tax changes ostensibly aimed at taxing the rich. Now, the details are still a bit of a moving target, but at the time we're recording this, it appears as though we may see tax increases for those uh, with earnings above $400,000, both in the top income and capital gains rates, and income tax surcharge for those earning above $5 million, the corporate tax rate, which is at 21%, being proposed to go up to 26.5%. And on the other side of things, it looks like the, the cap on the SALT deduction may be repealed. So there's a lot to talk about. And Richard, this is the Democrats' best chance in a long time to completely rework the tax code, and this is what they're coming up with. So my first question is simply this. Do you think progressives are happy with how this bill is turning out, and, and are you happy with it? Well, I think we're both unhappy, but for very different reasons. I think many of the difficulties that you see on the progressive side is that what Biden has abandoned is two provisions that they supported very strongly. One was a kind of a universal wealth tax, which would say we don't care whether you earn or don't earn in any given year. If you're above $50 million in net worth, what you have to do is to pay so much into the government. If you're over a billion, you have to pay that much more, 3% or whatever it is, raise to 6%. I think they wanted that. I also think they wanted to have a provision which says that realization of gain is not material. Uh, to the layman, this is an absolutely obscure concept, but what it means is I have a stock that I paid $100 for. It is now worth, at the end of the year, $1,000. Realization says I have to sell that stock in order to pay the gain of $900. Non-realization says you tax me on the $900 even though I've held it, and then you have to try to figure out a way to either borrow or to liquidate some fraction of the stock in order to pay the tax. Uh, those two proposals are extremely radical, and I think each of them in their own way leads to a genuine downward spiral. Uh, the progressives basically think that the only thing that happens when you tax wealth or uh, basically unrealized appreciation is that there's a wealth transfer. They tend to think that there's almost nothing that's going to look like a reduction in the total level of investment or something of that sort, followed by a loss in wages or whatever else you want to say. So they see it as a one-party game, and the only thing that happens are the intended consequences. Me, I think I'm exactly on the opposite side. I think that when you start looking at taxation, the first thing that you realize is that the incentive effects are extraordinarily powerful. We know that, for example, when we start looking at the differentials in state tax levels, where we see people moving out of highest tax states like California and Illinois and New York into low tax states like Texas, Tennessee, and Florida. These are not illusions. Every time you check the Electoral College, we know who's getting seats and who is losing them. And this is all driven by taxes and similar policies having to do with right-to-work laws or other forms of redistribution that don't involve taxation. I think those losses are long. I think they're enduring. I think that what happens is that the moment you make it impossible for people to reinvest the capital they made on a profit of one thing, they will not sell stocks. They'll borrow against it 
a very risky maneuver, and they will then use that as kind of income, which means that the efficient redeployment of capital to new firms will not take place. Uh, if you're a progressive, you believe that it's all baloney anyhow, you don't know which firm is doing what, and besides, you don't think that private capital should determine how the capital markets are organized, uh, you think that that should be done by some kind of government program. So they have a perfectly self-contained system, and all I can say about it is every premise reinforces the next, and they're all wrong, which means that the ultimate effect is going to be catastrophic if it gets through. On the other hand, if you kept to the current system and made modest adjustments in rates, I think every increase in tax at this particular point will uh, be on the wrong part as they were of the Laffer curve. They will probably result in decreased revenues on the one hand and reduction in productivity. And so I'm in favor of tax liberalization, not in favor of tax increases. So there are differences between them. Uh, uh, each of us does not like the current position, uh, but there's an absolute chasm between the progressives who want to double down, double down on everything and the classical liberal like myself who believes that low flat rates in the tradition of Adam Smith is the way to go. But Richard, one analysis uh, of the spending plans is, has totaled up about $11 trillion in new proposed spending, paid for with about $3.5 trillion in new tax hikes. So at the same time, these higher tax rates on the wealthy are being proposed. There's also the cap on the SALT deduction, the state and local tax deduction. is is It looks like it's going to be eliminated. The step-up basis is still not going to be eliminated. So 99% of the benefits there go to the top 1%. I want to know, is there a coherent tax policy from Democrats? And are we are we ever going to you know have them figure out that we've got to tax the middle class in order to pay for their agenda? Well, they've already figured this out. If they're going down to $400,000 for individual and $500,000 or whatever for a couple, and you're in one of these high-tax states, uh, $400,000 income in New York City, given the local taxes and everything else, gets you a two-bedroom apartment in a marginal source of town where you're dependent upon public schools for your children. This is not what you want to call uh, the rich. $400,000 if you're in the Kansas farmland will get you a very nice ranch house, public education, and all sorts of other perks. Uh, so the, the fact that you use a national number when the cost of living and the cost of taxes and other expenses vary by state by state by as much as two or three or fourfold indicates that there is just an unacceptable rigidity here. And there have been proposals that have been made that, well, if you're talking about the New York, what you want to do is to make sure that they get an $800,000 figure uh, because the cost of living here is so much higher. The moment you admit that for New York, you do it for Boston, you do it for San Francisco, maybe for Fresno, who knows? And the whole thing breaks apart. So the Democrats are stuck with keeping this utterly rigid um, kind of situation. They can't give the variations, the kind of thing that Jerry Nadler wants to do. And what it is, is it creates all sorts of massive inequities, and it will drive people away from the cities, uh, pretty pronounced, and it will drive them away from high-tax states. Already, I mean, it's not just a trickle of people who are leaving California for Texas and Idaho and uh, Tennessee and other places. It's a fairly large number. Um, California is listed as 50th in the states as willing doing business. The only man who disputes that is Mr. Gavin Newsom, who won by two to one on the recall motion. Uh, it gives you an idea that California politics are incorrigible. Uh, but the consequences of the incorrigible politics are probably inevitable. It will lead to a massive state decline. So I'd like just to revisit the 2017 uh, TCGA, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, passed by the Republicans, because the Democrats are planning to finance about half of their plan by rolling back some of those 2017 tax cuts. 
And, uh, you know, knowing that Democrats are in control now, do you think it was a good idea to pass those tax cuts on partisan lines? Would you have offered the GOP any advice on how to do uh, that tax reform differently? I really think that compromise is basically impossible under these circumstances, both ways. I mean, if you start looking at the demographics of the Senate and the House, the most conservative Democrat is to the left of the most liberal Republican and vice versa. And so there's no overlap. And when there's no overlap in the two constituencies, there's not going to be room for some kind of a brokered deal. Uh, so, yes, I think that the, the Republicans put it through. Uh, they made some pretty bold predictions, most of which I think have come more or less true with respect to the fact of the uh, basically the increase in investment capital leads to an increase in wages. Wages went up, particularly for the bottom part of the market, under um, Trump much more rapidly than they did over Obama for exactly that reason. You don't raise wages by giving cross-subsidies and high taxes. You raise them by reducing the tax on the marginal dollars for poor people, uh, which you can do uh, in a whole variety of ways by lower taxes and higher rates of return. So I don't think that they had anything they could do. The interesting question is, how do you decide whether something is a success or a failure? And this, of course, is something that has always bedeviled people because the Trump administration did two things. It basically was in favor of lower taxes, but it was also in favor of higher tariffs, all sorts of crazy cross subsidies for farmers and lots of other people. So you never get a clear empirical shot as to the consequences of that, independent of everything else that's going on at the straight time. So then what you have to do is you have to rely on theory. And the theory in the eyes of most liberals is that basically this is only a wealth transfer system in the manner that I said before, uh, so that you would expect very little improvement to take place. And then there are folks like myself who say, no, the dominant effect is going to be on outputs. If you get this muddy empirics, you're going to get this muddy kind of theoretical dispute which means that there's nothing that happened which is going to persuade anybody on the Democratic side that maybe Trump was right. Uh, the other tragedy is, of course, if this were tax cut put in by Mike Pence when Trump resigned in, say, uh, January of 19, 2017, never happened, obviously, uh, it would have been a different game because you would not have been able to throw the bogeyman Trump at it. Uh, one of the things that's so tragic is that the Democrats ran against Trump, I think, quite effectively in the recall election, which they managed to throttle Larry Elder, who was outspent, by the way, about 10 to 1. But, you know, that's just a nice point. And I think they're going to try to do it in 2022. The best things that can happen to the Republicans is for Donald Trump to take a vow of silence on this stuff so that policy can become the issue rather than a sort of nostalgia against either an extraordinary able or an extraordinarily evil president. I don't think it's within his capabilities, if he's healthy, to sit on the sidelines. But the way in which he could help the Republicans win is to remain silent. As far as I'm concerned, I think another Trump presidential campaign would be a catastrophe for the republic, uh, whether he wins or whether he loses. And I, my guess is he would lose if he tried to do this, which means that I doubt it would be Biden who will be running at the ripe old age of 81 or 82 20, in 2024. I don't think he will do that. But Lord knows who his successor will be, because the Democratic bench is very long on people with progressive inclination, very short on what we used to call Clinton Democrats, center-right Democrats, or center-left Democrats. Those people don't exist anymore. They have been completely driven out of the party. And so with that particular cleavage, it will be then some respectable Republican, maybe cursed by the 
hangover from Mr. Trump against a very militant liberal who may well be a bit more eloquent than is Mr. Biden. And it depends on just how bad the economic situation is to determine whether or not the left can beat the right. Um, I do think that there's going to be some kind of an economic decline. I think it's probably beginning to set in now. It's clear that Biden's going to owe it. Uh, but you know, again, you have ambiguities. So long as the tech boom continues roughly apace, it seems to me that the possibility of having a total wipeout in the economy is going to be reduced. So again, I don't think the Republicans are going to have a complete trump card on this particular issue. And there's so much uncertainty about the way in which this thing will play out that nobody could be confident of what the next election is. But as an intellectual matter, Tax the rich is a fine way to make everybody broke. Well, let's talk tax the rich because the Met Gala just happened. And the only reason to bring that up is because uh, people are talking about Congress, uh, Congresswoman uh, Ocasio-Cortez's dress where she wore a dress that said tax the rich painted on it. And you know, after it led to a debate over does she count as rich with her congressional salary, puts her in the top three, four percent. So who counts as rich? You know, we, we hear all the time tax the rich, make them pay their fair share. Richard, what constitutes constitutes a fair share? Well, we have to do with both of these things. One of the things that you discover is that the rich-poor line, at least as an analytical matter, or the rich-middle-class line, starts to say you're in it or you're out of it, and then you have to put some kind of number down on the table like 400000 It is, of course, a continuum, and somebody who earns $450,000 is against somebody who earns $2 million. They live completely different lifestyles. They don't even understand what the other one is about, and yet they lumped together for these purposes. And there's no question that the vast number of people over $400,000 are closer to that figure than they are to $3 million. Uh, so what you're doing is you're taxing people who are in the upper middle class, calling them rich. Uh, but what's going to happen is their lives are going to become much more difficult. Here's one of the constant problems you have. People buy homes. They finance their homes with mortgages. Mortgages carry annual interest rates. If it turns out that what happens is that you start to increase the tax burden, uh, you're very likely to A, reduce the value of homes and to B, decrease the default rate on with respect to these mortgages as people have less free cash in order to pay things off. If they then scrimp and save to do this with respect to the mortgages, they're going to cut down on their other expenditures. So the gardeners and the cleaners and the maids and everybody else who works in this kind of comfortable ecology is going to find themselves really hurt. Uh, to put it in another way, there's no way that you could quote unquote tax these rich people and not have some of those losses pass forward and backwards. One of the things that the progressive do is they assume that a tax hit hits and there it stays. Everybody knows when you start having incentives, it turns out that it moves backwards and forwards to all sorts of people who are not directly in the line of fire, but who are nonetheless coarse within it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, is the term fair has always had two different meanings, and it's kind of complicated. As a classical liberal, you could basically decompose it into two problems. One is you start talking about unfair competition, a very powerful phrase. And what it typically means within this framework is that what I do is I basically knock the wheels off of your cart so it can no longer sell your goods. I lie to customers about the quality of your goods, saying that they're all rancid. I take my crappy goods and I announce that there's some very much superior goods are made by somebody else. And so it's all a variation on the use of force and fraud as applied from two-party transactions to multiple market transactions. When the, the progressives use the word unfair, it has a completely different meaning. Uh, you start talking about unfair 
labor practices, uh, it turns out that means that you can't fire somebody because he's a union representative. And you build an entire system around that. And what's it designed to do? It's designed to increase the leverage that workers have against management by creating a monopoly situation in which the management cannot have a team in place unless it works through the notion. So if you use that meeting uh, and then you carry it over to the tax, it will have the following implications. Tax people, uh, when they start talking about things other than unfair competition, they typically mean pro rata returns with respect to a given investment. So if I put in twice as much to a venture as you do, a fair rate of return is 6%. I get twice as much as you do on that thing. A progressive would say it's fair no matter how much you put in to take out exactly the same number of fixed dollars. So what they do is they distort, distort the incentives to invest. That's the sense in which they're using the term. Their definition of fair is not flat. Their definition of fair is progressive, and the steeper it goes, the happier they are. Uh, to the progressive, the only limitation you would have is if you believe that as you start to increase the rates, you're going to reduce the total amount of revenues that you get from the rich, either because of loss of production or because of evasion from taxation by fraudulent schemes, so you want to back down. That point is actually probably surprisingly low. It's probably a 35 or 40% is when you start to see these kinds of untoward consequences, but they will be oblivious to that, and they'll start pushing for much higher rates, like they're doing on the capital gains, uh, the stuff that they're trying to do on the estate tax to cut it in half and so forth. So their definition of fair is more. And by that definition, no matter where you are, there's always a higher rate of tax. Is there a constitutional limitation on this? Well, the answer to that question is basically no. And the reason is the Supreme Court has always taken the position, we will never tolerate a tax if we think it's confiscatory. And then they will say, we've never seen a confiscatory tax. Uh, and so unless there's a change in heart, which I do not see coming in the short run, the only things that would get you into real trouble would be the wealth tax and the removal of the realization requirement. And the Democrats have already, at least in the short run, taken those two things off of the table. And so I think you're playing in a game in which there are very, very few constitutional constraints. Here's one to imagine, all right? You have somebody with low basis stock and it increases in value. And instead of giving people the higher basis without taxing them on the increment, you tax them on the increment. Then what you say is it's also covered by the estate tax um, and so forth. So you take the fair value and do that. If you put both of these taxes on this particular item, it may well turn out that you making a profit, pay taxes close to or in excess of 100% of the value of the asset in question. Even this Supreme Court might say a tax which is basically worth more than the thing taxed is not going to pass muster. Uh, but it's going to take several years to do this. And one of the things to note is there's something known as the Tax Injunction Act, which says that you cannot enjoin a tax but must sue for a refund. So you put these things into place, you could collect that money for several years, spend the money, then order the refund, and courts are going to be very reluctant to essentially make the federal government pay back money that it no longer has in the pocket. So all of these procedural and substantive things mean that this is largely a political value. If two senators, Manchin and Christopher, whatever her name is, um, what's her name? Sen Semina, I think it is. If they basically hold firm and the Democrats don't get this, even through reconciliation, we'll do fine. 
until the next election. Fine in the sense it'll be sputtery economy and so forth, but the large systematic threats will not be there. And then I think come 2022, the Democrats will lose their fragile majority in both houses. And so what you'll do is you'll have a standoff in government. It will cover all of these things. It will cover foreign defenses. It will cover certainly the judiciary, uh, which is an item in which uh, Biden has not pushed very hard to date. If he wins a bigger majority, then it's Johnny Barr the war. There's absolutely no margin on which the progressives are not prepared to move. And to my judgment, every one of their moves is a mistake, and they're all synergistic. That is, they make things worse upon worse upon worse. Uh, we would be in for a very, very grim time. Right now, I think the situation is in a very uneasy equilibrium. Uh, lots of small changes can have lots of large consequences. And so if somebody wanted to predict the future, uh, you better go to a serious with a glass crystal ball instead of coming to a mere lowly lawyer slash economist like myself. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.